I really appreciate that uh, we have uh, men reading the Scriptures each week, especially when there are a lot of tongue twisters like there were this morning. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would be here with us as we open uh, Your Word and as I seek to uh, proclaim it. I ask, Father, that You would uh, use this time in Your Word to give us a deep humility and a renewed faith in Jesus Christ and a, um, a renewed uh, joy that uh, we are His children. We pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Brian, are you able to get the uh, PowerPoint going? I'm going to start this sermon by breaking two rules that I always try to keep. Uh, first of all, I'm going to refer to Greek grammar more than I typically would. I try to discipline myself to keep the Greek well away from the sermon. Uh, unless it's absolutely necessary to make the point more clear. But typically, referring to Greek, uh, especially Greek grammar, makes everything less clear. Therefore, I try to avoid it. However, in this instance, uh, I believe it will make Romans 7 much clearer to then refer to the grammar. However, I'm not going to give a grammar lesson. I'm simply going to use it to visually illustrate a point. And this point leads to the next rule that I'm going to break. And that is I'm going to use an overhead in the sermon. Uh, but don't get used to it. I probably, this will probably be the only time I could forever, uh, in my ministry ever foresee myself doing it. Um, so, we have here um, a page from my Greek Bible. And you see on the left-hand side... Uh, verses 7 through 13, actually in the very bottom you see the beginning of verse 14, um, starting there, and then verses 14 through 25 on the right-hand column. And uh, the reason I'm putting this up is because there are two different views regarding Romans chapter 7. There is the traditional view, which is my view, uh, that says in verses 7 through 13, um, Paul is sharing his pre-Christian point of view. And he's, he's sharing his how he viewed the law and how the law was used by God to show him his sinfulness and his need for a Savior. And then in verses 14 through 25, Paul is sharing his Christian experience and the war that is going on within his soul to live a holy life before God. That's the traditional view. That's probably the way that, uh, that uh, most of you read Romans 7. But there's another view that says that all of Romans 7, from verses 7 through 25, is all Paul's pre-Christian life. And that Paul is using himself as an example and using his pre-Christian experience as an illustration of how powerless the law is to make us righteous before God. Uh, I would not go through all this trouble of having a PowerPoint or even going into the weeds of this, um, this disagreement on how to view Romans 7, but I know that several in the congregation stand on the opposite side uh, from me on this point. 
mainly because of the influence of John Piper. John Piper sees this as all uh, as uh, Paul's pre-Christian experience, um, and uh, I've had discussions with several in the congregation at different times over my ministry about this passage. I simply, I'm not going to go into all the arguments. I simply want to illustrate how stark the differences are between verses 7 through 13 and verses 14 through 25. What I've done is I've underlined all the verbs in, in, um, in this passage. And so the verbs in the past tense or the, uh, the aorist tense are underlined in red, and all the present tense verbs are underlined in blue. And then there's uh, one, the last, Huresatai, uh, or Huresatai is, um, is in black because that's future. But you can see how striking the difference is between verses 7 through 13 and verses 14 through 25. Past tense, verses 17 through 25, all the red. Uh, present tense, verse 14 through 25, uh, all in blue. Now you see that the first word in verse 14 is underlined in red, and then the first word in verse 18 is underlined in red. In fact, these are the same word. Oidamen, um, which is the past tense of gnosko, or the, as an irregular verb. It's, it means um, it means we know. And he has it in the past tense because that's something that everybody knows generally. And then oida in verse 18 is I know. And uh, again, he has it in the past tense simply because he's building his argument. But it has nothing to do with, uh, with the tense really in terms of, of his present time. He's, so I, just, I want you to see the striking difference here. Past uh, tense and present tense. Paul's past pre-Christian experience and then his present Christian experience. Okay, you can take that down. I just, like I said, I wanted to use that for illustration um, because uh, it underlines that Paul is speaking uh, of his present experience. In fact, to say that it's his past experience that all is his pre that all of this is his pre Christian experience, in my humble opinion, is to butcher the Greek grammar. There's a lot of other arguments that I'm just skipping over. I just simply wanted to make that illustration. Now, what is Paul concerned to argue here? Well, that's not in question. Uh, we don't have to guess at what Paul is set, is wanting to the point he's trying to make because. Uh, that pesky antagonist that we've been mentioning as we're working our way through the book of Romans, he pops up again in verse 7. And so he says in verse 7, what shall we say? That the law is sin? And Paul answers as he normally does. And he says, by no means. And so he gives this one short little answer, by no means. But then, as usual, Paul follows his short answer with an emphatic, um, with a with a much longer answer, and his longer answer is simply this: that the law is not bad or sinful. 
there's no defect with the law of God. Because the law of God is, after all, a reflection of God's righteousness. In order to understand this passage, we need to understand the main purpose of the law. Paul's already alluded to it several times in the book of Romans. Um, The main purpose of the law is to show us our sinfulness. And the Jews had turned the law completely upside down, completely on its head, because they were teaching that the law is the only way to be saved. When in fact, the law is intended to show us how sinful we really are. Paul goes on to say in verses 7-13 through that the law does more than just hold up a righteous mirror for us to measure ourselves by. And and, uh, the law is more than just a measuring stick to see how far short we fall. It does do that. But the law, according to Paul here in our passage, goes much further. And by the way, I, um, I realized that I would not have time to do justice to verses um, 14 through 25, so I'm saving that for next week. And we're just looking at verses 7 through 13. Or, and so anyway, uh, what Paul is, what Paul goes on to say in verses 7 through 13 is that the law royals or provokes sin in non-Christians. Look at verses 8 and 9. But the sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Paul's saying here, in these two verses, that the law provokes sin in us. Well, how does the law provoke sin? Well, there's a perversity in the human heart um, because of sin. That perversity is there from birth and it continues. There's a, there's a perversity in the human heart um, that goes back to Adam and Eve and all of his descendants are born with that perversity, are born with that, that sinfulness in our heart. So going back to Romans chapter 1, uh, there's a consuming self-centeredness that refuses to worship God or to submit to Him as our Creator. So then, when we are faced with God's law, there's a backlash that acts out in opposition to God when it is telling us to do something that we don't want to do or it is telling us not to do something that we really do want to do. Just like with the children. The children generally delight to obey their parents until they want to do something else. And then they don't hate the parents Sometimes it can feel hateful when they go against our express um, command or uh, direction. But here, unbelievers uh, have a, a, a perversity towards God, 
They'll obey God's law. In fact, they like that it brings order into their life. But they only obey it outwardly. Inwardly, never. Because inwardly, a non-Christian at the root of their heart is governed by self and will not allow God to govern our motives and our desires. We have a deep desire to be in charge in our life. We have a deep desire to be in control of the world around us. And we're happy outwardly to obey God's commandments as long as they don't get in the way too much. We like, as I said, we like the order. We like the stability that the law brings with it as long as it doesn't start meddling. As long as it doesn't start contradicting our deepest desires. But when it does, then we rise up against the law and against the lawgiver. Paul had grown up in a Christian home. He had been taught the law. He had been taught how to obey the law outwardly from his youth. He had so excelled in his outward obedience to the law that he had been enrolled in the best Jewish school in, um, in Judah. And he became a highly respected Pharisee. Yet we see Paul in verse 9 saying that he was alive apart from the law. When was he ever apart from the law if he was born and raised in a Jewish household? And what does it mean that when the commandment came, sin came, and he died? What's happening here is Paul is referring to the way that he saw himself as a Pharisee. He was certain that he was spiritually alive. He was certain that he was pleasing to God because of his obedience to the law. And this is the way most people perceive themselves. Most people the world over, or at least from my experience, most people that I've talked to in America, most people I've talked to in Uganda, so opposite ends of the world, so I'm assuming everybody in between, um, they believe that they are spiritually alive, that they are spiritually pleasing to God because they've been pretty good people. They believe that they've been... Um, generally good to others. They believe that they don't go out of their way to be a bad neighbor or citizen, and they're generally correct. They may be even able to quote several of the Ten Commandments, so they're not totally unfamiliar with the law. In fact, in my experience, most people would favorably acknowledge the usefulness of all of the Ten Commandments except, of course, for the Fourth. Um, because that tells us to take to make one day the Sabbath day, or, the, or rather the, the first day of the week, the Lord's day, and keep it holy. Does this description hit home for any of you? Is this descriptive of how you perceive yourselves? Yeah, I'm generally a pretty good person. Yeah, I'm I'm alive apart from the law. Or, or rather, I'm, I'm, I'm alive and pleasing to God. I obey the Ten Commandments, at least generally. Certainly outwardly. Never murdered anybody. I don't go around stealing. Um, I don't set out to lie very often. But 
listen to what Paul found out about himself in verses 10 and 11. He says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. When he says that the commandment promised life to him, to him, what he means is that it was his that was his perception while he was a Pharisee. He believed that the law did indeed promise life. As long as I obey it, it promises life. It does promise life if you obey it completely and perfectly. Who of us has ever obeyed God's law perfectly and completely from the heart? You know, it just uh, reminds me of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ because He did obey all of God's law perfectly, completely from the heart. He never in His heart sinned. From the time He was born, He obeyed His parents and He obeyed His God. He lived His life with people hating Him, yet He loved them in return. He loved all of His enemies perfectly. And then He went to the cross and died for them. Who of us can claim to ever match His righteousness and His holiness? He is the only one who kept the law perfectly. And then... He went to the cross and earned life for us through His perfect life and His propitiatory, His sacrificial, substitutionary death for us. So Paul's saying something happened to him that showed him that he was not pleasing to God at all. Rather, he found out that he was under God's condemnation and that he was quite dead spiritually. So what was it that caused Paul to have this change in his self-perception? Well, verse 9, Paul says that when the commandment came, that's when he began to see himself differently. Which commandment? Because he's only speaking of a singular commandment. Well, he's speaking of the tenth commandment. The tenth commandment um, says, do not covet. Let me give you some background as to what Paul's saying here. And I think it will make clear what he's saying in verses 7 through 13. Um, It will also help you see more of how uh, uh, um, how sin works in our life. Uh, If you think back to Acts chapter 6, the early church was growing exponentially. New Christians were being added to the church in Jerusalem daily. In fact, it says even many priests were coming to faith in Christ and being converted to Christianity. It was a great time in the early church. And so I'll begin with verse 7 in Acts chapter 6. And the word of the Lord continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, 
and of the Alexandrians of, and of those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and, disrupt, and disrupted or disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then secretly they, in, in, I'm sorry, they instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. It's interesting that the Bible specifically um, identifies this particular synagogue. It was the synagogue of the freedmen and it goes and talks about who came to this synagogue. Well, people from Sicilia. Why is that important? Because Tarsus, I mean, so Paul was born in Tarsus, which was a town in the region of Sicilia, which was up in Asia Minor. In other words, when Paul was in Jerusalem, he came to worship at this particular synagogue because that's where people from Sicilia came to worship. So Paul was in attendance when Stephen stood up and began preaching. And Paul was still called Saul at this time because he had not yet been converted. He was attending the synagogue and when he heard Stephen, um, this man who was untrained in the faith, this common man, this man who was a follower of Christianity, standing up in the synagogue and proclaiming the Gospel. And mighty Paul felt powerless to try and dispute with him because Stephen was speaking so powerfully that all of a sudden, Paul was overcome with envy towards Stephen. But instead of of um, of seeing that he was a covetous man, it made him angry. The commandment um, uh, began to to work in him uh, with his sinful nature and showed him just how sinful he really was. But Paul would not uh, would not see it. He felt, I'm sure, he felt the guilt. I'm sure he was um, riddled with envy and knew that it was wrong. But instead of repenting, he decided to get rid of the one who was causing him to envy. I'm sure he was one of the instigators who uh, brought the false charges against Stephen. He was one of the instigators that rushed at Stephen, drug him outside the city, and stoned him. So instead of learning from the Ten Commandments that he was sinning, it drove him to greater anger and hatred. And this is what Paul's saying that the law does in our life when we refuse to obey it. So now listen to chapter 7, verse 54 in, in the book of Acts. Now when they heard these things as Stephen was preaching, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who later we know as Paul. It's clear he was an instigator in this. 
And then in chapter 8, verse 1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church of Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Paul knew the command not to covet. And when he found himself being consumed with covetousness, he tried to wipe out the source of his guilt by becoming a murderer. This is what Paul says when he says that he was alive apart from the law. He thought he was great. He thought he had his relationship with God was perfect. But all of a sudden, confronted with his covetousness, It caused him to to, uh, lash out in a murderous rage. I believe this explains the rage of our culture against Christianity in our present day. People inwardly feel great guilt for their sins. We have a conscience that is God-given. But instead of fleeing to Jesus Christ, they are incited by their guilt, or we could say incited by the law, to greater hatred of God and everything He stands for. Their sinfulness is evident to everyone but them. The law of God has an inward application at every point. You are not simply to obey the the commandments outwardly. You are to obey it from the heart. And when you begin measuring yourself against Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus gives inward applications of the Ten Commandments. We see how far short we fall. The commandment not to murder, the positive side of that is we are to love our neighbor. And we are also, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, love our enemy. If you are unwilling to love your enemy, you are guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. You're guilty of murder. You see how that works? You are to love your enemies from your heart. And you're not to just grit your teeth and go about it. You are to love them, truly love them, and desire to love them. Otherwise, you're a lawbreaker. The law here, Paul says, taught him that he truly was a sinner. What about you? Do you understand the sin that is uh, in your life, in your heart? Do you understand, therefore, your need of a Savior? We're more sinful than we could ever imagine. But we have a Savior that is able to save us from all our sins. Now, if you're if you're a believer and you're struggling with sin, how do you respond? Well, that's next week, verses 14 through 25. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love for us in Jesus Christ. When we see ourselves um, up against the law, when the law shows us that we indeed are not alive, but rather completely spiritually dead apart from Jesus Christ. We see the great love 
with which You have loved us. We see the great mercy which we have received. Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning to turn afresh and anew to the Lord Jesus Christ and hang on to Him for the righteousness and the mercy and the love that You give us through Him. We pray in His name. Amen.